Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast, your personal guide to understanding the modern world around us. Hello, listener. Welcome back to the Modern History HSC Podcast. It's been a little while, but we have been doing some preparation for today's show where it's going to be Students' Choice. Um, we've got three speakers today. We've got Jade, Ben, and Jack, and each of them are picking an area where they wanted to spend a little bit more time on to um, flesh out, say, a concept or a subject. So Jade is going to be talking about the Soviet Union. Ben wanted to talk about Chernobyl and whether or not it was a major impact on the fall of the Soviet Union. Um in the ending of the 20th century and Jack is going to be focusing on the power and authority section looking at the rise of the Nazi party. So how are we going guys? Good, pretty good. Okay, you're not doing good? No, I'm good. Okay, it's good. Okay, it's probably a bit upset because we're doing this recording on the day that the Queen passed away. Rest in peace. <laughs> 70, don't laugh, 70 years of reign, one of the world's probably, well, Cold War is like our bread and butter, probably one of the most important, like, diplomats of the last 70 years or so. Um, but this show is not about the Queen. There will be plenty of people way more qualified than us to speak about the Queen. The, the BBC comes to mind. So we're going to stick to what we know. So Ben's going to start off, um, introduce your topic. Ben might ask some questions, but we got a bit of a taste of three different topics today. Thanks, Ben. Um, so I'm doing the impact of Chernobyl and uh, whether it had an, like a big impact on the downfall of the Soviet Union, which I think it very well did. Um, so I've kind of got it in like a few different parts. I'm going to start off with uh, like what happened with Chernobyl, what, like why did it why did the reactor blow up and all that and then how it was contained or how they tried multiple different ways and then kind of like the aftermath, um, like what happened as a result, what were like the consequences and whether it had an impact on the downfall. So, yeah, I'll just start off with the um, what happened. So initially there was supposed to be like a um, like a test like they do like tests on the reactor just to make sure it's like functioning in that. And while doing a test, they left all, uh, there was supposed to be a supervisor that made sure they were doing it all correctly, but he just kind of left and just didn't really supervise them at all and left all these unexperienced, uh, like plant workers in there and they pretty much blew it up and yeah, they, uh, like, it was just, yeah, they they did it wrong and they had no supervisor there. So they blew up this RBMK reactor, which is pretty massive and was uh, invented by the Soviets. And initially it caused 31 instant deaths as a result of it blowing up. And overall, though, it, I couldn't really find like a clear kind of like death count, I guess, because they don't really know, but as well as the Soviets swept it under the rug pretty hard, so couldn't really find how many deaths Chernobyl has led to, but I did find that a total of 1.8 million Ukrainian people were affected by Chernobyl 
in different ways of like disabilities, deformities and deaths and even, yeah, just like people today, like having a child that can come out with deformities from the radiation. Um, so uh, it, how it was contained. So uh, this, uh, this guy, Valery Lagasov, was tasked with containing uh, Chernobyl and trying to like put out the big fire of like radiation, like put out the fire as well as like the radiation, like smoke and that, that was like spreading pretty much everywhere all the way to like other countries as well. And he was a specialist in chemistry, which involves like power plants, RBMK, RBMK reactors and just all that kind of stuff. So their first mission was they sent three men on a suicide mission in radiation-filled water underneath the reactor to try and, I believe it was try to try and shut off, like, the water flow because if the water rose too high, it would, like, I can't remember completely, but it was like, yeah, if the water rose too high to the point of the reactor, it would just, like, make it a lot worse. So that, uh, Ben, yeah. uh, just sorry to cut in on your story, but, yeah, I... The water was an issue because yeah. they were worried that if the water broke through to where the fuel rods were, you would get instant vaporization yeah. of the water and it's basically like a gigantic hydrogen bomb. Yeah. <laughs> so those three men were were, were stopping yeah, a hydrogen bomb explosion. Yeah. yeah, sorry, mate. Keep going. Yeah, all good. Um, And, yeah, that, like, the three men that were sent in there on the HBO series of Chernobyl, that's, like, a very kind of scary like kind of thing when they're going through and they've got like lights to try and see where they are and the the radiation eventually makes the light stop working because it's just too much for it and yeah it's just really like it's just stuff that that'd be yeah and i believe the eventually those three uh died a week later from radiation and then yeah so they did that and then after that they sent in two helicopters to pour a mixture of materials mostly containing sand over the fire. And they couldn't really get over the fire because the smoke was just filled with radiation. So the second you'd go over the smoke, it would just melt anything pretty much and like just disintegrate it. And they couldn't really get the sand like close enough to the fire. So one of the pilots pretty much went on this suicide mission and went over like directly over the smoke and dropped his sand or the sand over it, and he uh, stopped the fire, but the routers, like the helicopter routers, uh, melted and he crashed into a crane and died pretty much. So that was, yeah, not the best. A lot of people making sacrifices yeah. by the sounds of it. Like, um, was, uh, Yeah, then after that they, yeah, have to see... Eventually, yeah. So after that, they they had roughly about a thousand men or so with shovels go up to the rooftop of like where the reactor was, and they had each man. I think they did it in like intervals of about ten people or so go up on the roof at a time, and they did it over like a minute's time, just clear as much like debris and because all the debris was pretty much just filled with radiation and just they couldn't really touch it for long so they just had to get the debris on the shovel and just throw it over the roof and to do that after doing that i think yeah i think once they would clear the debris then their mission was to kind of just like that would be closer to the reactor to kind of just like prevent it and stop it more um and originally they 
before doing this with a thousand men, they originally used controlled robots on like the wheels and that with like their own little shovels and they tried to use them, but the radiation killed it before the robot could even be used. So that kind of failed, but they did get the men to clear the roof. So that was kind of half successful. And then they used miners to dig under the reactor to create space for a heat exchanger to stop the molten core from completely melting. And the temperature was so hot that the miners were forced to strip naked as the tunnels, yeah, were just like too too inhumane to work in. So yeah, the Valeri and like the other guys that he was with to task with like stop the reactor, they were pretty shocked and they found all the miners were just completely naked digging. And they had to do it all by hand too. Yeah. Because no machines would function yeah. with the radiation. As well as, yeah, there was an also, you see it in the um, HBO series, this guy goes in because they couldn't really get an initial number of like how bad the radi- radiation was because any kind of like device that they used, the radiation would just go completely past it. So they didn't really know. But this one guy went in with a truck and it had some like huge kind of device that measured like a lot of uh, radiation and it was like i can't remember how much it was but it was like yeah i don't think the world's seen how much like that much radiation in one spot before like spread out and then yes after the tunnels yeah i think that i think that was like the last kind of thing that they did and that eventually did stop it and yeah they stopped the um molten core from melting and then i think after that they just kind of <laughs> yeah and then see so yeah, now i'm going into the, like the in, the overall impact of chernobyl and the spillage of valeri because yeah he kind of knew about how cheap the government was and one of the reasons why chernobyl happened is because their soviet built rbmk reactor was just like cheap and just crappy and yeah that's one of the reasons why it exploded because exploded because it just wasn't that good so during a televised to world court trial for the Chernobyl and the, I think there was three guys that were getting charged with, it was the supervisor, the guy that ran the plant and kind of his co-worker that was or like co-managed it as well. And yeah, they were being charged for kind of just not supervising and not having well work, like good workers and that to manage the plant and just stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, so Valeri went on this televised trial and as like he was going up to say his part and that he just spilled out a bunch of Soviet Union secrets, which included like the government spending no money on like their reactors and just being very cheap, uh, like their inconsistencies of caring about the workers in the plants because he found out that a lot of the workers were just treated badly and just not experienced whatsoever. And yeah, they were just... Yeah, not very good. Um, as well as explaining that the Soviet Union keeps too many secrets from the public and just, which leads to events like Chernobyl that pretty much, yeah, that gets swept under the rug. And after the trial, after all that, uh, yeah, so Valeri spilled out and Chernobyl happened at possibly the worst time because he, when he told all these secrets and pretty much like ratted out the government at the time that Glasnost was coming out, which is like the openness and like open-minded 
public that can speak out and kind of stuff like that, which we've talked about in a different podcast. And yeah, all this happened as that was being introduced. So yeah, that was probably the worst time for the Soviets, the worst timing that that could have happened for them, which yeah, caused a huge blow. I, I read a thing on, I don't know what side it was, but it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, like how, uh, Chernobyl, like completely just destroyed, like the political parties and just like stuff like, uh, like the credibility. Yeah. And just like, yeah, that's definitely one thing that led to their downfall. Um, and then, yeah, after all that, uh, Valeri was very closely watched by the secret police every day until, uh, for a year until Valeri hung himself exactly one year to the minute of the explosion of Chernobyl. And then, yeah, because he was either just going to be taken to jail or just completely being watched every minute because, yeah, the secret police were onto him. Um, so yeah, I've written out one question here. Does anyone know how many men served from Chernobyl, like that lived in there? I think it was like 800,000. Um, but yeah, one, I believe it was one third of, or two thirds of the men that were living in Chernobyl served to try and stop it and just stuff like that, which it included like they had papers, uh, like specific people go around killing all pets they could find in like apartments and houses and that to, yeah, like stop the deformities and just all that kind of stuff as well as trees that would like inhale the radiation and just keep it going for a lot longer than it needed to be as well as land as well. They would just rip up all like rain, uh, like woodland and stuff like that with like diggers and stuff just to, yeah, get rid of the land and grow it back as, like, better because it was just filled with radiation. And, yeah, just to finish it off with, like, how it impacted Gorbachev, I believe in 2002, I think he, after, like, Soviet Union had its downfall, Gorbachev came out with a quote saying that Chernobyl is the reason why the Soviet Union pretty much got demolished and, yeah, because just how Valeri chose the perfect time to speak out in glass, like when glass was just being introduced and stuff like that. Yeah. That's all that. So if you got a question along the lines of, you know, to what extent was Chernobyl an, uh, a factor in the collapse of the Soviet union, how would you kind of rank it against all the other options that you could possibly say? Um, well, I only really know of like the two reasons why it led to the downfall, which is Glasnost and Chernobyl. And yeah, I'd rank them two at like the top of like top number one next to each other of why uh, the Soviet Union led to its own downfall. So yeah, I'd, I'd rate it pretty high. Yeah. It's just like another nail in the coffin. Yeah. You've got the pulling back of the Brezhnev doctrine. Mm-hmm. So the Soviets saying, you know, we're not going to and our army or money to these places anymore to keep the union together. Got Reagan ramping up um, with the with a new space race, a new arms race, which they can't afford. And you've been hitting home on a really good point is that up until like even right up to like the eighties, like people didn't know that the cold war was going to end in a decade. Like they just thought that this is the norm now. It's just going to be these two empires battling it out forever and a lot of people in the West 
um, were very sympathetic to yeah. the Soviet Union. They were like, "Oh, this is a great, this is a great idea. We should be doing more, like doing our business more like them." But it's because it was all behind the curtain, and no one could see what was actually happening, which was rotting. Yeah. And Chernobyl was like this elephant in the room that couldn't be ignored. Yeah. And then people were like that and the Gulag Archipelago. So you have the fact that, like you said, they're cheaping out um, specifically, and you didn't mention it, where they were saying that they cheaped out on the materials, made a good point about the workers not, um, you know, not being treated properly and whatnot. But in those reactors, what was it called again? MK? Uh, RBMK. RBMK reactors. There's like a kill switch. Yeah. So in the reactor, you have the the fuel rods and they're going through their reaction and creating a lot of heat. And the way that you control those levels is by putting another material close into the mix. Um, if you want to absolutely kill the reaction, you plunge this material in overwhelming quantities into the fuel rods and it just kills the whole reactor. It's like... Worst case scenario, you shut down the plant. It's yeah. super expensive. I think that was the last thing that happened, but because they cheaped out on the material that was supposed to kill the reaction, yeah. it acted like a firing cap for a gun yeah. and exploded the reactor instead of stopping the chain reaction. Rightio. That was really interesting. I really enjoyed listening to that, getting a bit of a recap. So, Jade, let's hear a little bit more about the Soviet Union, but rewinding back to the time of Stalin. Yeah, so my topic was the Soviet state under Stalin, which is a little bit before the time frame that Ben was talking about. Um, and I listened to a previous podcast that was done by, um, like, last year's Year 12. It was Luke, Tom and um, Lachlan. And they talked about pretty much the same topic. So I have a few notes about like what it generally is from them. And then we got a question regarding this sort of syllabus dot point in our trial. So then I've got a few like ways that you could go about answering that question as well. So starting off with what it's kind of just a general idea of what it is. So Stalin wins the power struggle between like Trotsky and Bukharin and Kamenev and Zinoviev and all that, which is a completely different thing. But basically he's got um, a lot of power at this point and he starts implementing his um, idea of communism, um, which is his own ideology called Stalinism, which is focused largely on industry collectivization, eliminating private land. And then he sets up his five-year plans to reach um, really unrealistic goals for industry and agriculture and all that kind of thing. And just throughout this time period, the kulaks or the, the landowners become scapegoated and... Tom mentions the fact that 30,000 were killed through the forced collectivization period and like 2 million were sent away to forced labor camps and stuff like that. So that's like a massive part of what Stalin does when he begins to have all this power as he starts industrializing and 
increasing agriculture in the Soviet Union. And then um, another aspect of this was the cult of personality, which Luke talks about in the podcast. And he basically just says that Stalin becomes like a messiah for the Soviet Union because they were really um, orthodox Christian, wasn't it? Like, Yeah, orthodox Christianity. Yeah, before... Um, obviously the Communist Party kind of took over and made it atheist because they were obviously trying to remove class and religion kind of presents like a little bit of a class in its own way. So they eliminated that and then he mentions that Stalin makes himself the religion and um, presents himself as their saviour, which is filling the religious void and just kind of allowing Stalinism to permeate every aspect of life. So it wasn't just that, you know, agriculture and industry was increasing, but um, he changed their religion and lots of other aspects of their personal life as well by building that cult of personality. So then when we did our trial, we got a question that was along the lines of to what extent was the Soviet state transformed under Stalin and the way I did pick this question, but like reflecting back on it, I have got a lot more that I could have said and added and just a better approach that I could have done. So obviously your thesis would, you'd have to be making a judgment because it's asking to what extent. So um, for me, that would be a great extent because he just absolutely comes in and changes everything pretty much. So then... Um, typically you do like your three body paragraphs. It doesn't have to be that, but I've separated it into industrialization and collectivization, political and social conditions, and then cultural and religious oppression. So the first one would be the paragraph where you talk about all the, um, five year plan stuff and what he was aiming to do, um, in doing that. And, in the podcast I was listening to from last year, um, Tom mentions a quote from Stalin himself that is, we are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make up this gap in 10 years. Either we do it or they will crush us. So that's a piece of evidence that you could put into your argument when you're trying to say that he's transforming the state to a great extent um, because that's how you can kind of understand the motive behind making such drastic changes is that he was trying to um, reach economic parity with the Western world or the US and just any other countries that were more advanced than Russia because at this point they were pretty far behind. And then the five-year plans when he set out to create machinery in order to mechanise agriculture, create armaments which would be used to defend Russia from a German invasion, which... Stalin had sort of seen coming and um, it resulted in an increase in outputs such as plastic, steel, coal, fertilizer, rubber and medicine, huge increases in production like electricity and then unemployment was eliminated. And then this is where you could say that Stalin was successful in modernizing Russia. So he was, he did achieve his goal to 
catch up with the Western world. And then I thought it was interesting too when I was looking into it that it generated genuine communist enthusiasm, meaning that people were seeing these successes like the new um, more outputs and more electricity and stuff like that and they were actually getting excited about being under the communist regime because they were seeing the successes that came with it. But obviously there was a lot of downfalls to it but I just thought that was interesting. And then the second paragraph is the political and social conditions under Stalin, which is where you would talk about the show trials and the Red Terror, which Stalin was using to eliminate opposition. And um, those who escaped death were sent to gulags, so forced labour camps. And then I found that Stalin who was believed to have masterminded Kirov's death, used his murder to be able to pass legislation that removed protection of party members from denunciation or punishment. So he actually, it's like undecided if he um, killed Kirov um, himself or he had nothing to do with it. But nonetheless, he was able to use that situation to be able to remove the protection of party members. And then from this, Zinoviev, Kamenev and Bukharin were all removed via show trial. So um, he basically has just instilled a lot of terror across the nation. He doesn't have many um, people to oppose him at this point. And even then, he's starting to kill them all, so... And um, he also has, like, the secret police and whatnot happening during this time. So um, you would be able to say that he transformed the Soviet state drastically because he was able to create this um, climate of terror. And then finally, the final paragraph that I would have put was cultural and religious oppression, which is like I was talking about before, this cult of personality is that he abolished the prominence of the Orthodox Christian Christian Church that previously permeated, permeated Russian society and was replaced with the cult of Lenin and later Stalin's own cult of personality. So during the power struggle, Stalin um, he imposed the cult of Lenin more than his own cult of personality just because he was like, coming like sort of not as well known as Lenin and he thought this would be a better way to like become Lenin's successor and then once obviously he was in power he built his own cult of personality and then he abolished religious practices banned publications from the church and church land was also um, used and taken to be repurposed for collectivized farming and then for the more cultural side of that point, um, arts and culture were closely monitored by Stalin. Composers' Union was created to regulate music, literature. Stalin viewed as threatening or offensive was destroyed and many professors and academics were purged. So that's kind of got two different sides to it. The religion and then the culture of the Soviet Union were both drastically changed under Stalin. So that would be the final point that I would put in for that question.
Rightio. What do you think's the most dramatic change? Like, I love it how you broke it up into those four really clear points that anyone would be able to take in. Um, which one do you think stands out the most as having the most dramatic change on the Soviet society, the religion, the politics, the economy, or is it hard to pick? Um, I think it's hard to compare them because they're from different aspects of life, I guess. And, yeah, they're very, like, different things. But I think maybe the economic side with the industrialization and collectivization because I know that under his five-year plans he was making massive changes to Russia and, like, obviously the other things were pretty big too but I just feel like – and that one – seems to be the most well-known as well. Like a a lot of people talk about his five-year plans and stuff. Yeah. Is there a common thread that like ties those four points together that you would say that all of them seem to be a byproduct of one particular aspect of Stalinism? More thing you like from the films we've seen and the sources and the amount of time we've spent looking at this particular sort of person. How does he like to run things? He likes to be the boss. Likes to be the boss. Centralize. Would you say that centralization is the common thread that ties all of this stuff together? Yeah, I would. I would agree with that because obviously for the political one, he would eliminate all his opposition. He centralized all the agriculture and stuff like that and then the culture and religion was just changed to be all about him yeah so if you were going into this question part of like your overarching argument in the introduction is that is this paranoid micromanaging control freak who's just obsessed with centralization that's what stalinism is communism would centralization and then yeah every point you're making after that is just like and here it here's how it manifested in the politics here's how it manifested in the next thing so you can kind of keep it and tie it all together righto our last and next dictator jack no i mean i mean hitler Uh, well, I had discussed how the Nazi party rose to power in Germany and I've got that German morale was at an all time low after their loss in World War One, and Germany was treated quite unfairly as they had to pay, you know, for everyone else's damages and it wasn't really fair on them. But the Nazi party originally were called the German Workers Party and they were founded in 1919. They weren't really a threat, but... Hitler also joined it in 1919. There was only about 40 members in it originally, so they weren't really a thing, to be honest. But Hitler's job when he joined, he was responsible for publicity and propaganda. But in 1920, they officially became the Nazi Party and their popularity started to rapidly increase until 1923. The party went from 40 members to 23,000, so it was a pretty big jump and they became quite a significant political force. 
They also had their own paramilitary force called the SA. And originally the SA only were there to protect like the Nazi members, like the members of the party, the leaders of it. But eventually they just became like thugs <coughs> that would just go and beat up their opposition. So like they'd just go do what they wanted. Um, and then probably they had their first attempt at a coup to overtake the government. It was the Beer Hall Putsch and they got a pretty popular general from World War One, Ludendorff, and he was recruited by the Nazis to join them because they probably saw him as, if they see him on our side, they'll take us more serious. But uh, he, they when they went to the Beer Hall Putsch, they took it, I guess you could say they took it hostage, like they kept everyone in there, but Ludendorff made a mistake and uh, he trusted one of the main people they wanted to keep in there. He, the guy promised he wouldn't go tell the police if you let him go and Ludendorff, for some reason, he decided to trust him and, of course, the first thing that he did once he left is he went and called the cops and... <laughs> you ran up the army. Yeah, he got the <laughs> army and, yeah... There was a pretty big shootout. Some members, I don't know if anyone died in it, but I know some people did get shot. Hitler got sent to jail. Most of them left the country, and then Himmler went to his mum's house. I just always remember that. Göring <laughs> got shot in the leg, got a drug habit. Drug habit. Yeah, Hitler went to jail, which is where he wrote Mein Kampf. Um, but pretty much after everyone... Got like got out of jail and started to meet up again. The I don't remember what they did for a while, but I do remember one of the big things they did was they predicted the Wall Street crash. And once everyone kind of saw that they predicted that, they probably would have taken them quite serious and like maybe trusted them a lot more. Like if they can predict a huge stock market crash, who knows what else they can do if they're actually like the official leaders and. Eventually, Hitler, he ended up becoming chancellor, which, like, that's a pretty important thing if you want to, if you want your political party to run a country, being chancellor definitely would, would help with that. And uh, he started to create laws and policies which were making other political parties illegal. So it was... For safety, of Yeah, course. for safety to make sure that, you know, they were all good. He made other party members illegal, which I feel like that was a huge kind of help like if you have no opposition probably gonna you know rise to power and yeah that's basically what i had i guess we could go like a little bit more than that so you're saying like removing people night of the long knives oh uh, yeah, yeah tell us a bit about that um from, oh, i don't remember a lot about it i just remember wasn't it with ernst rome yeah yeah it was about yeah. because he was that was it. I wanted to make sure I didn't want to be wrong about that. He was uh, being a homosexual and like back then that was quite frowned upon and they didn't have that maybe to be evidence in their downfall. So they wanted to be extra safe. And I believe, yeah, I believe it was Goebbels and Himmler that wanted, because they seen him getting a lot of recognition from Hitler. So they were like, let's get it. <laughs> he was leading the SA and yeah. Himmler wanted to bring in the SS. It's just like, how do we like undermine him? And like Hitler knew, as what we're, I think we're all referring the um, Hitler's in a circle of evil yeah. series. Um, like Hitler knew that Ernst Rom was a homosexual and was totally fine with it. It was only when they were saying that it was um, 
seeping into what particular group that Hitler like particularly wanted to, you know, look after and make sure was pure. Do we remember what group? The, that the Hitler Youth. Yeah, Hitler Youth. That he, once he once he heard that particular bit of poison being dropped in his ear, it's just like oh, it's like this is spreading to the kids. Hitler just didn't want a bar of it. That was like the last straw. Um, what about Hitler getting to the point of being Führer? Like you said, he was Chancellor. Um, Does anybody remember the steps up to that? No, the, the, like one of the last ones was Hindenburg, who was, was like, what was he, like Prime Minister or just like the head Like the, of the President. Yeah, President. He died and then Hitler combined the two and called himself, called himself the Führer. Mm. Yep. So there's no separation of like powers he's just like i'm gonna make this super position the fuhrer essentially like the emperor of germany um so are there any other factors because you've done a really good overview any other factors that you would say helped the nazi party rise to power jack um other than them you know having very good foresight um having really good timing, getting the right people involved, purging what they thought were impurities, which was probably the right thing to do because most people in Germany and outside of Germany, once they went around and killed all these people in this massive purge, were like, oh, look, Hitler's cleaning the house. It's like, what a what a, an effective leader. <laughs> it's like, it'd be like Anthony Albanese like turning around tomorrow and saying that he wants to like purge people in the federal police and we're all like, Oh yeah, that makes me feel so much safer. Is there anything else? Um, didn't he like create ideas of a perfect family, which was like the women would stay home and have kids, whereas the men would go have like the, the, what'd you call it? Like, so jobs. Yeah. He promised people like highways and cars and houses and land and that. Yeah, the autobahn and the Volkswagen, yeah. which nobody got. <laughs> Not before the Second World War started. Yeah, so he's creating economic prosperity, certainly better than what it was before. Um, where you said that idea of the family, do you think the fact that the Nazis were so good in tapping into the national, like the nationalism aspect. Do you think that really helped them rise to power that made Germans feel good about themselves again? Yeah, most definitely. Because I mean, after World War One, like the country was in financial ruin because they had to print all this money, which just caused inflation. And then they would have, they'd like, there's pictures of them coming to the store to buy bread and they have a full suitcase of money and there's yeah. kids just like making planes out of money <laughs> in the street and just like yeah. throwing it in water and stuff because it, it, it was nothing. So, I mean, I feel like once they found someone who said like he can fix it all and actually, you know, he was fixing it, he was trying to help, they probably, you know, they would have seen him as the next. Um. I think does anybody else got anything else? Uh, more about this one, just like really trying to lean into this. So, um, what did what did Hitler do 
in regards to religion? Did he do a Stalin? Did he was like, you know, got to get rid of it? Did he have problems with the church? I think he did a little bit. Um, once Goebbels got up making that like, propaganda machine where no one was allowed to publish anything unless he said so, I think, like, churches were limited in what they were allowed to say and stuff like that. Yeah. It's the same sort of rule book. It's not just limited to Stalinism. It's just that all these centralising power figures realise that the monarchy used the church to legitimise their power and these new leaders who are mostly secular and have no allegiance to any sort of religion are like, got to get rid of you. We don't want people identifying with you anymore. And for the case of the Nazis, they create this whole new religion where it's like you worship the state and Hitler becomes a demigod in his own right. Like he's got to like even keeping up his facade of being like single is like one little element. <laughs> For all, everyone's just like, what? It's just, yeah, well, if we have a look back to like the footage, like the ladies loved him. And that was like why he had to keep his relationship with Ava Bronze secret for so long. It's like you can't let it out to the public that you're a taken man. You got to keep that mystique and you got to keep that mythos going, that, that allure and whatnot. All these subtle little things that to get the people to fall in love with him. Is there anything else we want to ask about the particular topics? No, I think everyone did a really good job giving a nice rundown of the three topics. Listener, I hope you really like this episode and we'll see you next time on the Modern History HSC podcast. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>